Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you all for joining us this week. We're excited to be back in the studio for another cool episode all about the landscape. I'm your host, Kate Sadler, and I'm here with my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Good to be here. I am smiling because we have a special guest in studio. That's right. <laughs> Someone we know well. I know. I will introduce <laughs> all of her credentials in just a moment. But full disclosure, it's actually my mom, whom we've mentioned on the podcast before. So I will outline everything she's done up to this point. But please welcome Deborah Caldwell to the show. Thank Hi. you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, we're glad you're here. So it changes the dynamic of the studio a little bit. It's usually me and Charles like intently looking at each other, discussing gardens. And we have someone else to bring a, an additional gardening mm-hmm. perspective, which I think is going to be hopefully valuable to our listeners and right. change up our dynamic a little bit. Open the aperture. <laughs> so catch us up, Charles. What are we doing this week in terms of gardening, garden design, any, any fun projects or travel on the horizon? Well, let's see. We've got you know, some local uh, Texas projects going on. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. And, and actually soil is a part of that. You know, it's working with the local soils. Oh, you just mentioned our topic for today, which <laughs> and, I'm sure our st- listeners have gotten from the show notes. And let's see, we're working on uh, designs. There's a Long Island project we're working mm-hmm. on. That's a whole different, that's sandy. So that's, you water it and it's dry within uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. So you're kind of teasing our topic today, which is all about soil. In terms of this week's activities, in order to prep for these Texas projects, we're actually taking a special trip. All three of us, in fact, we're all going together to trip. (laughs) Where? To Peckerwood Gardens. And what's special about Peckerwood Gardens? Why are we trekking out there? It's a plant collection. So it's native plants. It wouldn't necessarily be native right to the immediate area. There's like Mexican plants. So it's beautifully designed and it's a very deep, rich collection of native plants. Deborah, anything to add? Have you been there yet? No, I haven't. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. And so we'll probably report back to our listeners about that special garden and uh, some of the others you visited recently, including Longview. So we've we've teased all these ideas. Mm -hmm. We're also working on an episode all about designing for children. So if you have specific questions, feel free to get in touch with us. We're thinking of topics not just on the fun spectrum, but on the safety spectrum and uh, mobility spectrum. So we hope that that will be of interest to our listeners. We'll see if the editors can edit out our computer making noise in the background. (laughs) Sometimes it's Cocker Spaniels and sometimes it's the computer that has not been muted. So (laughs) that's right. You've got mail. (laughs) Bear with us. Yes, indeed. Another exciting development this week, I think, for just about everybody in the gardening community is the release of Monty Don's Garden American Gardens show. Oh, right. Did you all watch that? Oh, mm-hmm. it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah it was we, very exciting. We've only seen episode one here in North America. Just talk about a standard <laughs> in terms of mm-hmm. communicating the sheer joy of gardening. And yeah, a very special. And the soulfulness. Maybe that's what Monty... Mm. I think he's attracted to that. And like people are attracted to gardens that have soul, whether it's it's a humble local garden in the Bronx where people are growing vegetables or it's a sophisticated design garden. But there's almost no way of if a garden has soul, it comes through. And if it doesn't, it could be very sophisticated, very exclusive, but it, it kind of falls flat. There's not a soul to the garden. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of, of designing for that 
It's sort of je ne sais quoi. So certainly, I'm sure our listeners are already on board with that. That was more of a mention from a sheer fan perspective. And there were people <laughs> just so uh, fun to watch, just from the garden community that I inhabit. You know, there were there were people that I'm familiar with that were in the show, which was exciting. Was so exciting. You really found some great, you know, exciting American gardens. Okay, I think that's all we have this week. Of course, we're one of those podcasts that does a little bit of catching up from week to week. I know mm-hmm. if, you, if you're trying to get to the meat and potatoes of the garden, uh, we do have that coming right now. So we're going to switch to our topic of the week, which is all about soil, which I know nothing about. <laughs> but our listeners know I'm not the resident expert. Our resident expert this week, as I mentioned, is Deborah Caldwell. And she holds a bachelor's degree in zoology from UC Berkeley a master's in zoology from Arizona State University. She was a professor of the life sciences, all the categories, ecology, biology, anatomy, within the California Community College system. How many years? 30 years. 30 years. (laughs) Great. And uh, you've developed a number of online courses in biology and ecology. And for our purposes, you've developed some courses for beginning gardeners. Yes. Botany. Basic botany. And also now we have the soil series and we'll probably have ecology of gardening soon and some others. And the how to read series, which if you're really, really coming to this from the beginning, Mm -hmm. is a great way to get acquainted with all the labels that you'll find in the landscape in terms of pesticide use or even the plant label that comes with something. So we've talked a lot lately about things that would be fast growers and plants that might need sun or shade. And all of that information is actually provided to you if you know where to look for it. Well, that principle, like the right plant in the right place, it's the label more or less is the, Mm. is a way to get to the right plant, the right place. And (laughs) then deciphering. Yeah. Great. And in addition to that, and the reason you've been mentioned on this show is that you are an avid lifelong gardener. I am not, (laughs) but I keep encountering avid lifelong gardeners in my life. So uh, all those trips to Home Depot or the nursery, uh, the little plot in the backyard where we grew Cosmos, I think, was the popular one when I was little. Yeah, all of that was courtesy of you. So I appreciate that. Great. Anything else to add about your qualifications before we get started? Uh, Well, I trained as a master gardener and I've worked on a farm growing vegetables, uh, flowers, fruits, and of course, a lot of experience in my own gardens. Oh, yes, that's right. I mean, one of the emphases of your work at the community college and with this farm had to do with urban agriculture and making the most out of the resources that are available in a world that has this changing ecology and challenges to food security for many people. And I'm sure a lot of that is dependent on the soil in which this stuff is growing. I would suppose in cities, you might have things like brown, is it brown sites? Uh, brown fields. Brown fields where there's pollution and all sorts of things. So the health and well-being of our soil is the foundation right. <laughs> of our gardens. So why don't you get us started with a description of what soil even is? Soil is about 45 to around almost 50% minerals, which is weathered rock. Another 25% is air, 25% is water, and the organic matter makes up anywhere from about five-tenths to 5% of the soil. So air, the soil actually has air in it? Air is very important. Plant roots need air. You mentioned, Charles, in the episode about houseplants that one of the things you like to do was 
set the plant in the sink in water, mm-hmm. water it, and it would actually help push air out and create this transfer of air. Right, to get fresh air. Okay, so that's interesting to think of that, of there being that much air beneath your feet. I don't think that would have occurred to me. So I guess non-permeable surfaces maybe make that exchange more difficult. Right. So for certain kinds of construction, you have to, com- like a driveway base with gravel, you have to compact it. I forget the percentage, but it's like 85%. So there's things that are for construction. So you have a solid foundation that you need, which is detrimental to tree roots and other kind of plants. Okay. So speaking of non-permeable surfaces, those obviously are the hardest texture. There are different types of soil in terms of how compacted they are. What is that about? Well, soil has texture, which is based on the size of the soil particles. If you have sand, for example, the particles are relatively large. You can pick up a handful of sand and see individual grains because they range in size from about two millimeters down to about five hundredths of a millimeter in diameter. Below that, you have smaller silt particles, which are less than five hundredths of a millimeter down to about two thousandths of a millimeter. And then even tinier are clay particles, which are less than two thousandths of a millimeter. You could see them only with a microscope. It is possible to have a soil that's 100% sand or 100% silt and so on, but most soils are actually a mixture of different size particles. And the size of particles or the texture of soil is important because it affects all sorts of things like aeration, water and nutrient retention, workability. So it's important to know the texture of your soil. We were in Galveston just the other day, and of course, it's got sandy beaches, but then there's also what would appear to be silt, maybe coming from the uh, Mississippi Delta and things like that. So I'm sure that's a different shoreline than you would find on like a pristine white sandy beach in terms of what can grow there. So it's interesting to think about that in terms of texture. So what's the function of soil? What do we use it for? Well, of course, soil is used to grow plants. It also has a very large community of microorganisms and other organisms underground. We build structures in soil. Okay. In terms of the microorganisms, I heard once, and it may have been from you, so maybe you can correct me, that if you took all the soil away, like all the minerals, as you said, and all the organic matter, you would still have a cloud of microorganisms, nematodes and things like that. Is that true? That's correct, because even in a teaspoon of soil, you have trillions of organisms. That's crazy to think about. (laughs) (laughs) And I was saying, uh, as we were, I was telling Charles that anecdote and saying as we were preparing for the episode that there's some funny, it's like a sign in SpongeBob that's like nematodes are people too. <laughs> so here we have these organisms that were literally the foundation beneath our feet and we don't even think about them. But it's exciting to think of soil as this living environment in which it's just very active in an ideal setting. I'm sure that's not true everywhere. Right. Charles, in terms of the structure and texture of soil for landscape construction, we already talked about the driveway, non-permeable construction. Is there an impact? So we're not talking necessarily about planting, which we'll get to between the two of you. But if you want to put in a patio or a pool, do you need to know something about your soil structure? You do, right? I mean, engineers 
on projects. I've been consultant engineer and they would do a soil, they would do permeability tests. Like there was a project where we needed to put in dry wells. That often occurs where you're creating more impervious surface, a patio, a driveway, and the municipality requires you to, they don't want that storm, they don't want to increase the amount of stormwater running off. So you retain the, you'd retain the stormwater, the runoff from the roofs, the driveways, in dry wells. And so depending on if the soil is, if there's ledge rock, and so you go like just below the surface, there's rock or it's impervious. We've had cases where you have to put, instead of putting one big dry well, that would be convenient, dig one hole and put a container to hold the runoff. We've had to do lots of small ones because it was the percolation rate, if that's low, it rains and the water just sort of sits there. So we've had to do like, let's say five small dry wells, which are close to the surface. And then you have basically more surface area than having one giant one. And we were just in an office, engineering office here in Texas. And they had the, it was a picture, it was a map, sorry, a map of Texas with all the different soil types kind of reflected in the map. It was very colorful. So that leads me to believe, although I'm no expert, that maybe there's a lot of different kinds of soil here. Oh, there are. And the soils maps that we saw, it's fascinating. The vegetation map for the state is very similar to the soils map. So there's parts, I think it's Eastern Texas is the piney region. So that soil is quite different. It sustains pines. There's the post oak region. And that just is a different soil, I'd imagine. Like near Texas A&M, the, the joke is that the land was free. It was, that land was given to Texas A&M, and it has the most horrible soil. I've, people on the faculty have said that. So it's hard to grow plants. It's like an agricultural school, and it's hard to grow plants on the campus. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so in terms of soil for gardening, what is the ideal soil structure, texture, composition? The ideal soil is called loam. And it's 40% sand, 40% silt, and about 20% clay. And it has the different size particles, so you have all of the characteristics that you want. Good aeration, good drainage. It does retain water. It also holds nutrients fairly well. If you don't have loam, though, you can improve your soil with organic matter. Because in a sandy soil, for example, organic matter acts like little sponges to hold on to the water and improve retention. On the other hand, if you have heavy clay soil, you can add organic matter, which pushes the little particles apart and improves aeration and drainage. Okay, so this is for both of you. Charles, you have one method for testing what kind of soil you have. And then Deborah, you had a different method that I think involved the jar. So Charles, what's your method? Well, and then we'll go to Deborah. There's maybe two that I use where I dig a, to see how, perm, how fast an area drains. I would dig a hole fill it with water, and then does it drain within hours? Does it take one day, two days? And there's guidelines for how big a hole and how many hours for it to drain. And the other one is you can make a two, but I have to make a ball, you know, just to see on a very basic level. If it's clay, then you make like a very tight ball. And if you can't make a ball, it's sand. It's usually somewhere in between, but you got a pretty quick, it's pretty accurate that you're, if it's very heavy clay, like on a constructed site, you in the Northeast, they excavate the foundation, it's often clay, and then that's used as topsoil. That's, they spread that out through the property. Then they put nice topsoil the last two inches. So before you're going to do a big project, you really have to dig down and, and do a number of soil tests. 
Great. And then Deborah, what was your method for kind of examining the structure and texture of your own soil? Well, a home gardener can do a simple jar test. Uh, You just need a quart jar and you fill it about a third of the way with soil from your garden and then fill the rest with water. Cap it and shake it really well uh, so all the particles go into suspension and then put it down. And in about two minutes, the heavy sand particles will go to the bottom. After about two hours, the silt should settle out. And after 24 hours, the clay particles should settle. So you'll be able to see distinct layers and you can estimate the percentage of each Mm -hmm. and determine the kind of soil you have. Boy, that's a great test. That sounds really cool. That's sort of like (laughs) a soil snow globe. And just as an aside, it's an amazing sort of meditative exercise to watch things settle in a jar of water. So if you really need to kind of soothe your mind, uh, you can shake up your soil jar and then see how the layers filter out. That's really neat. Okay, so that gives you some information. Can you talk about the community of organisms a little more and tell us how promoting their diversity. So you already talked about amending the soil in order to adjust the compaction level of it using organic matter. Does that do anything else in terms of these organic communities in the soil? The organic matter or humus in the soil is the base of the food chain. It's what the microorganisms feed on. So the more organic matter, the greater biodiversity you're going to have in the larger number of organisms. In a good, healthy soil, you'll have a lot of organic matter at the base of the food chain, and that will be consumed by decomposers like bacteria, fungi. In turn, those are fed on by microorganisms that are a little bit bigger, as well as animals. And as you move up the food chain, you may start to see insects and other invertebrates. You may even start to see centipedes and spiders and moles as predators. That sounds like a great (laughs) community going on there. So moles are not like, they're not going after your plants at all. They can disturb your plants. They can be pests in that sense, but they tend to eat the invertebrates. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about composting, amending the soil, but let's say you're starting from scratch and you don't know the first thing about composting, or you need to get some bang for your buck before you have time to let your banana peels and avocado pits molder in the backyard. What do you do when you go to a nursery or box store or even a soil store? Because I guess those they have those. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are you looking for and how do you know? Well, uh, let's see. I'll take it away. On planting jobs, Deborah, you can chime in to what you think of it. What we often do, we do what we do a soil test before installing a you know a garden, where it'd be primarily shrubs and trees, and then some ground covers. So we're often removing lawn, taking that away, and creating beds. We often do a layer of compost, so that's leaf litter. It's something that's decomposed, so it's it's similar to mulch that is decomposed. And so there's often leaf litter and other material. And so, but it's like black and rich. So if the soil is moderate to poor, we would go to that length, which is a fair amount of the time. If it's a mature garden and you're editing it, that's different. But And do you put the compost down in just a layer? Is it just a block? Or correct. do you turn it into the existing soil? Well, we'd often spread it. Let's say we're, we would cut out the beds, areas, remove sod where you're going to plant, and then do like an inch, like about two inches of compost in the beds, which is on, on, the, on the ground level, and then excavate where you're going to plant. So that process, the compost gets mixed up. 
then there's mulch on top. So there's a, there's this layer of organic matter. And so my sense is that then the, it, it encourages microbial activity and it helps enrich the soil. So Deborah, if you're doing raised beds, is it a similar process or do you do a balance of soils in the raised beds? Is it just compost from top to bottom? No, because the compost is going to decompose eventually and you won't have anything left. So you want to have soil with the minerals because compost is just the organic matter. Where do you get that soil? Would that come from somewhere else in your garden or do you buy it? You probably are going to have to buy it unless you make your own compost and and create raised beds over the years. But you probably will need to get a load of soil and you need to be careful about your sources and do some investigation because there have been instances of killer compost that uh, had uh, weed killers, pesticides, and mm. people used that for their gardens and then watched everything die. And of course, the soil was horribly contaminated for years. You also want to check any compost or mulch that you buy to see whether or not it has sewage sludge, because that sometimes can have heavy metals and other contaminants. All right. Well, that's alarming. <laughs> Glad you mentioned that. Is there anything you should be cognizant of in terms of your own compost pile? Are there, should you be only putting in organic banana peels and avocado pits or is it that extreme or or are you really talking about extreme cases? You can use your own kitchen waste or yard waste. Obviously, if you're putting herbicides on your plants, it's probably not a good idea to use your own yard waste. Compost piles, if they're hot compost, get up to maybe 160 degrees Fahrenheit and can actually kill pests, microorganisms, disease-causing organisms. To some extent, they might be able to degrade some chemicals. But yes, you do want to be somewhat careful in what you put in your own compost. I told someone that compost piles can catch on fire. Was that correct? If you have a lot of dry plant material, of course, it could catch on fire. You want to keep your compost pile about as wet as a sponge. You don't want it to be super soggy, but if it stops decomposing and gets too dry, then you're not going to get compost. I see. Okay. Yes. This was a situation where a spouse was not watering it to the extent that the other spouse wanted. And I said, well, you know, they they can catch on fire. And then the person I was speaking with was excited because they were going to share that with said spouse. And I'm sure that that person began to water adequately. So that's a really good recommendation. We've gotten into the concept of amendments and composting. Was there anything you wanted to add about the structure of soil, the texture, the basic composition or function of soil that maybe we glossed over? I don't want to miss anything for people's basic understanding. Structure of soil refers to the aggregation or clumping of soil particles. And to some extent, that's achieved by microorganisms. Bacteria and other microorganisms excrete waste. And the waste acts kind of like a super glue that holds the soil particles together so you can get much bigger clumps. And that increases the porosity and the movement of water down through the soil and also aeration. Okay, I'm glad I asked. We wouldn't want to miss anything of that level of importance. In terms of plant sturdiness, so let's say your plant, you have healthy soil, your plants are growing. Does the soil have anything to do with how tall a plant can get or how sturdy, or is that not a part of a soil's function? The richness of the soil 
So if you have on uh, Monty Dunn's uh, recent show, I think they gave that example that some of these, like the Dutch wave movement where you have perennials, tall grasses, which is more or less plants from the Midwestern US, the soil's very poor. And so the plants get quite tall and they're very sturdy. Where so some plants like uh, like nepeda, cat mint, or plants that like poor that do well in poor soil, when they're in rich soil, they can grow up and flop over. I've had that experience. So the uh, there's some plants where rich soil can be detrimental. I don't know if that answers the question. But that's, no, it's very that, good. That's I, some I guess you would want to maybe be care like take care in terms of reading the plant label when you're picking the soil in which to grow things. It's helpful to know that not all plants grow in the same types of soil. And I guess anybody who's done cacti would know that. Those probably prefer sandy soil. Well, succulents need good drainage. So you may want to have gravel mixed into the soil, maybe a little bit of sand, because if they don't drain, the roots tend to rot. We'll talk a little bit more about plant types and soil types and how those go together. Let's continue on the topic of amending the soil because it sounds like we have a big impact on the health and fertility of our own soil. When I think of not just compost, but types of amendments, I think the most potent that I can recall would be manure. You know mm-hmm. when it's been spread. Uh, <laughs> why? What's the purpose of manure and would you use it frequently? Manures are high in nitrogen. So if you're trying to add a lot of nitrogen to your soil, you can use something like that. It depends on what your soil needs. And the best thing you can do is to have a soil test done. Probably your county extension service has a lab that does soil testing, or you can find a private lab. Because sometimes people spend a lot of money and effort trying to amend their soil, and they add things it doesn't need, and they miss things that your soil does need. Oh, right. Like a common thing people... They think, oh, I should add lime for my lawn, and they just incessantly add, or it may not need it, or they're fertilizing, they're mulching and fertilizing every year, and there's excessive amounts doing damage where it's running off, it's contaminating the local waterways. So that's a little bit of a theme on this podcast. We're always talking about doing an inventory first, kind of figuring out what the program is. So it sounds like you may think about what you're going to want to plant then get the test to figure out what your soil has in it and what it might need in order to support that planting mm-hmm. and then take it from there before you really get carried away with <laughs> doing stuff. Although, is there? do you think there's anything, like would having a compost pile for your organic matter ever be detrimental? Not for the soil. Compost piles sometimes can attract pests like rats. So you may want to be careful about how you construct it, Keep an eye on it to make sure you're not harboring any pests. You know, doing a soil inventory, that could be a first step, and that could inform what you plant instead of the other way around, saying, oh, boy, I, I want this type of, I want a hydrangea garden, but you have like very heavy clay soil. Or maybe something that has a similar beautiful flower that would exist in what you already have. Like the less impact, really the better. So it's not always saying, well, how can I change the conditions to meet what I have? It's, as I understand it, at amending the soil, it's, it's somewhat of a temporary process. You're going to have to keep, if it's low in a certain elements, minerals, it's not a permanent. So to, to, to plant something, it's sort of an uphill battle, is my experience. It's better to try to find a plant that likes the soil you have to some extent. And there, you can tweak it some, but to, to radically change soil is 
is not is not realistic unless you're on doing it on a giant civic scale. <laughs> well, that's that's also helpful. And I think a good example of this is the on a minor scale is the blue hydrangea that grows in my sister's yard in oh. Oregon. And I imagine that that has incredibly special soil created from the rivers and the volcanoes that exist in the Cascade Mountain Range. And I think Deborah has a supplement to this example. Well, I took some cuttings from the beautiful blue hydrangea and nurtured them and brought them down to Texas and planted them in my clay soil. And they turned pink. (laughs) And I did try to add an acid amendment and they're still as pink as can be and not doing very well. So I just think that goes to the point of aspiration may not always meet reality Mm -hmm. and the it just encourages us another good reason to visit her mm. out there. <laughs> yes. You know, a plant that's pop- popular is growing blueberry bushes. Mm. I mean, in the Northeast, lots of customers want to do that with their children. They think, isn't this? So a plant like that, that re- has pretty specific soil conditions, doing it in a planter, it can be very successful because you put the correct type of soil pH in there. And I can think of a number of properties that have uh, thriving blueberry bushes in, in planters and hydrangeas could be the same thing. You could really get the right soil pH. That's much more realistic than altering what's in the ground. I understand, I think, that is it peas or a certain kind of bean that adds something into the soil that maybe plants themselves, what you choose to plant can actually have a reciprocal impact on what's going on in the soil. So maybe, mm. Deborah, you can talk more about that. Legumes uh, form a mutualistic relationship with bacteria that pull nitrogen from the atmosphere. It's called nitrogen fixation. And the little bacteria grow in nodules in the roots of legumes. So when you grow legumes, they're actually bringing nitrogen into the soil. If you leave the plants, uh, they're going to add a lot of nitrogen. And then you could plant something else in that area. Which brings us to the topic of cover crops, and possibly plant rotation, which is not something we necessarily think about in terms of the decorative garden. It's more of an agricultural concept. Is that something we should be mindful of, even if we're planting annual beds or perennials that maybe get switched out? What are your thoughts? It's especially important if you're planting vegetables, because vegetables have different requirements. And if you plant the same thing year after year after year, you're going to deplete the soil you also will get a greater concentration of pests that build up. A good example would be the squash vine borer, which has larvae down in the soil. And so if you plant squash in the same place year after year, you're going to have heavy infestations. So then what is the purpose of a cover crop? And Charles, maybe you can answer a little bit about what you might do with your annuals and perennials to rotate them, or if that's even an issue, again, in sort of like the decorative garden. Cover crops have several advantages. They're often put in over the winter because otherwise the soil would be exposed and would tend to erode. Many cover crops include legumes, bell beans, field peas, and others both help to put nitrogen in the soil and also keep the soil covered. Then they can be tilled in during the spring and add nutrients. So Charles, is this a consideration in landscape design circles? Well. I guess not in my experience. So a, a design landscape, it goes through a life cycle. If you're composting, mulching, in my experience, that if it's the right plant in the right place, you wouldn't have to 
rotate the crops. But where it comes up, though, when we visited uh, some of the the uh, growers, like when I went to J. Frank Schmidt in Oregon, they explained. So they're growing ornamental trees and shrub shade trees, and so it might stay in the like a plot. Maybe it's like five. The plants there for five years, give or take. And they're let's say they're growing like a field of of maples. When though when they harvest those. Then they plant a cover crop, and it's for a year or two, I think. And they mentioned clover, rye, uh, and there were other plants, that, which might have been legume, legumes too. So they, that real estate's very valuable. I mean, every, every acre is there to produce crops and make a profit. But they explain it's, that the, the health of the soil is so vital that letting that soil rest, it's worth it. And that's part of their business plan, that they have, they have fields that are that are being recharged, so to speak. And then there's fields that are, that are growing plants. On the ornamental agricultural level, that is definitely done. If you don't do it, then, then the quality goes down. Charles, you mentioned mulch for your beds in the process of kind of building up the soil that we have in beds. What is mulch and what's it for? Well, there's all different opinions on, on so when I say mulch, I often mean a shredded bark mulch. That's particularly like in the Northeast, that's what is when people say mulch, that's what they mean. I would say in general, beds are over mulched. So in my mind, a good design mulch is really, it's like a temporary ground cover. It's designed in such a way that within two years, three years, definitely within five years of plantings, more or less fill in with perennials, ground cover, shrubs. And the mulching should be at that, let's say after five years, should be very minimal that it's I'm not in favor of giant expanses of beds with mulch in perpetuity. That's not, to, and then plants are, beds are often over mulched, which is detrimental to the tree roots and the beds can stay wet. It's, it's so generally mulch is like a shredded mulch is overused. Deborah, anything to add about mulch? Does, does it have an impact on the organic community we've talked about in soil? Well, mulch. I agree with Charles that uh, when I think of mulch, I think of organic material, but mulch can also be something like rocks or uh, newspapers or just about anything that covers the soil and smothers weeds, can retain moisture. It can affect temperature of soil, keeping it cooler in the summer. It is possible to, uh, if you're using an organic mulch that breaks down, it's going to add to the organic matter in the soil. It's essentially composting in place. I think I've even seen. There's a, a little fungus that grows on mulch that looks like little bird bird nests. Bird I mean, there's yeah, fungus. yeah, there's stuff going on on the mm-hmm. mulch as well, which is kind of cool. And uh, I think Charles, you've mentioned here in Texas, they use pecan shells. Oh, right, there's crushed pecan shells. Yeah, all right. Uh, so it's that's just sort of fascinating with, in landscape traveling throughout North America and other places. What they use, like in the southern U.S., pine needles. You know, mm-hmm. so there's. In a way, mulch in some it's often like a waste product. Something like crushed pecan shells, if they're not, they're gonna be disposed of or pine needles or shredded bark. So it's often like a waste product. And so to 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 utilize that regionally, that does make sense. Like that is sustainable to let's say to truck in some exotic mulch from Maine into Texas. That could be done. It's not maybe the best use to like use pine needles. Or crushed pecan shells, like to, like the mulch is really regional. I would encourage that. And if mulch is labeled, is it labeled with 
we've talked about acidity, we've talked about nitrogen. Is it labeled with the things that it's going to leave in the soil? And are there mulches we should avoid because they maybe are like treated lumber or something? You, again, want to be careful about your source of mulch. It could be contaminated. Some people don't want to put much wood mulch on their soil because they argue that it uses up the nitrogen in the soil, or specifically the microorganisms that decompose the mulch use up the nitrogen. Also, it would depend on what you're growing. If you're growing trees, then a wood mulch makes more sense. If you're growing um, vegetables, then you might want uh, mulch that is uh, made of herbaceous material. As I understand it also, I could be wrong, but I have heard that items in landfill do not decompose. Even organic matter in landfills does not decompose to the extent that one might imagine. So setting aside this organic matter and really having a culture of composting and and reintroducing into the soil sounds really positive, that you are not contributing to landfill waste. You're actually revitalizing soil. We're all about ecology on this podcast, so I thought I'd add that. Like a mulch, just in my opinion, to stay away from would be mulch that's dyed. So it's it's readily available. It's often in a bag. If if the mulch is is coming in a in a bag in a plastic bag, that is not necessarily something that I'd want to ever contact anything you'd eat. So it could be shredded wood pallets are used, which is not a good material to grow plants in. It's like probably treated lumber. It's often, whether it's dyed black or brown or red. And so I often steer customers away from that, that it's, it's putting chemicals and other harmful elements into the soil. Well, and to be fair to wood pallets, they're often treated because they could potentially bring woodborne pests in mm. and out of the places that they're shipped to. So uh, you want your wood pallets to be treated it, just to try to keep invasives at bay. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I don't think then organic organisms are going to thrive in that kind of material. So that's helpful. So another topic that came up is this idea of compaction protection. So we talk a lot about designing in the landscape and then getting out there and doing the landscape renovations. Perhaps you're renovating your home or even considering new construction and you're mindful that you're going to want to have a garden in the new space. And are there certain building practices that would be detrimental to your soil specifically? Like using machinery for construction, there's often machinery, bulldozers and loaders, and even the workers parking their pickup trucks on the lawn. What I always suggest is having a certified arborist do a tree protection plan, even having a soil protection plan of, let's say there's going to be making concrete on site, having a washout site, because the runoff from construction, that can damage the soil. So let's say there's a heritage and what's the, tree. What is the threat to trees? I mean, I could see running into the trunk might be detrimental. Oh, right. The soil gets compacted, even from, like from foot traffic, from heavy foot traffic, say a college campus or a public park, people just standing on the soil, large amounts of people that'll compact the soil. And then you lose that all the air particles. And so when, then there's not a positive exchange of gases, as I understand it. And so that'll, that will shorten the life of a tree. Deborah, is this something you need to be mindful of in your home garden? I, you know, I often see footpaths. What do you call those? Stepping stones and things in the garden. Is that something you'd suggest? Yes, absolutely. If you have a vegetable bed or an area where you're growing 
perennials, you want to try to minimize the amount that you walk on those areas because even walking can compact the soil. And Charles, you kind of had an alarming statistic about there is sort of a point of no return. Oh, right. I was, I sat in on a construction meeting in Texas and there were, it was the top architects and the top landscape architects and consulting arborists were all there. And so this one board certified master arborist, he was saying, a bulldozer just making a few passes on the soil that it does more or less like irreparable damage to the soil. So that's, it's not going to be a nice place for plants to grow for trees. And it, it's deceptive though, because when, let's say tr- plants are installed where the soil's compacted, they're probably not going to die right away. So it's like uh, our firm will often get called in, maybe it's seven years since they did construction and lots of the trees look horrible. It, it, it appears like it's a mystery that, oh, what, what happened? <laughs> so the, the soil compaction, it doesn't lead to the plants declining right away necessarily. And Deborah, in terms of the tree protection plan, you were making a point about sort of the radius around the tree. Tree roots extend quite far. Uh, surprisingly, people don't realize how far they go out into the landscape. So a builder might protect a tree a few feet out when in fact the area should be much larger to protect the tree roots. So we as homeowners might, if we're cognizant of that, we might be able to request a larger area of protection just if it's of importance to us. So this has been a, an information-packed episode. Thank you for listening and hanging in with our format while we work out having three people in the studio. We hope you enjoyed it. We welcome feedback. Before we get our last comments here on soil, if there's something else you'd like to know about soil, we will have the soil class online available at kinggardeninc.com under our online courses tab. And so you can get an idea of all the things we've been talking about. Of course, it would help to have some visual cues. We will try to give you a little teaser on in video format so that if you want to take a look at what the jar of soil settling looks like or the Mm -hmm. structure of soil, we'll try to get you (laughs) some images and make that available to our listeners. And of course, if you mention the show, when you sign up for the soil class, we'll have a special discount code available for you. So we'll make sure that that's available. So just mention in the landscape and we'll make sure you get a 50% off of the online soil course. Okay, that's out of the way. Anyone have any last thoughts today? Feed your soil, not your plants. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Succinct. <laughs> I always like sharing some resources that I think to be useful. Uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture website. Then there's within that is the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And they have a, a web soil survey. So it's all kinds of soil resources. Um, in the Northeast, there's uh, NOFA, which is Northeast Organic Farming Association. And I would imagine there's corresponding in other parts of the country where you can take a soils class and learn all about soil and the benefits, how to protect it, how to be a good steward of the soil. And do master gardener programs typically have resources for people in terms of soil? You mentioned community extensions for getting soil tests. Uh, you can go to your county extension service to get more information about the soil in your area, soil testing, and most also give information about plants that do particularly well in your area. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week for another great episode of In the Landscape. We certainly hope you find an opportunity to get into your own landscape sometime soon. And uh, we hope you have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.